This month's episode of Lamb Talks is brought to us by Dr. Nicole Helsinger. We thank Dr. Helsinger so much, both for her contribution for this episode and, if you may remember, she was a guest a couple of episodes ago. If you haven't had the chance, we encourage you to go back and listen to her wonderful episode. She's fittingly sponsoring a former Grand Vice President of Developments episode, Dr. Tiffany Self-Vickers. So we are so appreciative of Dr. Helsinger for sponsoring this month's episode, and we hope you all enjoy. Thank you. Welcome to Lamb Talks, the official podcast of Lambda Kappa Sigma. I'm Sarah Kaboyan, and I'm a community pharmacist, Lambda Kappa Sigma sister, and a lamb for life. And I'm Justine Dixon. I'm an ambulatory care pharmacist, Lambda Kappa Sigma sister, and a lamb for life. Our mission is to elevate our sisters in pharmacy by connecting them with our esteemed alumni network. Tune into each episode to meet our new guests, stay connected with your fellow sisters, and learn something new about the world of pharmacy. Justine, we're on Lamb Talks. <laughs> Sarah, we're here again. We're here. Another episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's been about a month. <laughs> it has been about a month. Yep. Um, if you're listening to this and as it's released, you know what's going on. If you're listening to this in 2022, Justine and I are currently recording in mid-May of 2020, <laughs> mid COVID pandemic. So yep. still happening. It's still going on, y'all. We're still here, but yeah. we're going strong. The yeah. sisterhood, it's going strong. This could be pieces of history in the future. I wonder if like in 20 years, this will be like an exam on the test. Like Dr. Anthony Fauci will be like an exam answer. Oh yeah. I thought you meant lamb talks. Oh, I, mean, <laughs> I was like, uh, Sarah, I think you're thinking very highly of us right now, <laughs> but you can't keep dreaming. I mean, it might be an orientation question. Who are the co-hosts of lamb talks? Maybe mm, potentially, but no, Totally. I think Anthony Fauci masks and all that jazz could. Oh, what is an N95 mask? Yeah. Definitely be. Yeah. Or what are other options for N95 masks? Or what's the proper sequence for washing your hands? How long do you wash your hands for? Where do you wear your mask? Should it cover your nose, your mouth, your chin, your eyeballs? Twitter RX. What? No, I said I saw that on Twitter RX. Yes. When wearing masks. Yes. So you got to make sure that it covers your nose and your mouth. Mouth. Not a chin strap. Not a forehead strap. Exactly. I did see a guy driving the other day who was wearing it above his forehead, almost like a headband. Oh, I've seen, you know how like obviously the masks have different shapes and they're ones that are almost like a bowl. Like a yeah, yeah. Sometimes people have it almost like a horn, like right oh, on dear. forehead. When I drive, I take it off completely. Yeah, I do too. But I see a lot of people in my neck of the woods that are that are driving with them. And I, I did have to question some of my coworkers. I'm like, are you guys driving with your masks on? Is there any reason to do that? They yeah. all said no, so I don't. I don't either. Um, I have seen some people like when 
they have it off in their car, they'll hang it from their um, rear view mirror. Mm-hmm. I so the sun, will, so the sun will get it. <laughs> oh, maybe <laughs> warm it up. Yeah, I don't know. I usually just put it back into like my baggie. Yeah, I think that's the smart move. Yeah, but we'll probably be wearing masks for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So maybe in the future, at a future convention, there'll be like LKS. LKS masks from 2020 as some sort of relic Oh, back in the day. Maybe. Could be. They could go for a lot of money at the silent auction. Ooh. <laughs> Anyways, so what um, we can talk about O-Tilts. Oh, We're still yeah. learning. We're still learning. Learning doesn't stop. Exactly. Lifelong learners, even of course. with the pandemic. So what's something that you learned recently? So recently, I learned that you can become board certified in MTM. I did not know that. I thought that was pretty nifty. That is pretty cool. And I think as practice, especially an outpatient, leans towards that. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're making a lot of our money. I think it's great that we can really make it more in-depth and meaningful. Is there a a test that you have to take as well and like monthly or, you know, annual competencies or something? That's what it looks like. I saw that there was an exam. So my assumption is that to uphold it and stay current, there are RCEs that go along with it. Are you going to go for it? I think so. No, I saw it. I think that looked pretty good. Do you think your company, does your company reimburse for education like that? Hmm. That's something to look into. I'm not sure. Yeah. Something to just double check because sometimes they might pay for either the test or the ongoing materials to, you know, keep up the certification because they probably would encourage, I would assume that they would encourage. Yeah. Um, we definitely place high importance on that, which mm-hmm. is great. Did you also want to talk about something? Oh, there's also some etiquette that I think <laughs> needs to be addressed. Just yes. call me Emily Post. <laughs> <laughs> so, with it being May that we're recording, it's graduation season. Congratulations to Congratulations any to you all. Yes, anyone that graduated, even though it was virtual, you are amazing. You will go on to do amazing things. Keep us, keep involved, keep keep listening, keep checking in, join your alumni chapters and all that jazz. You truly are a lamb for life. Mm-hmm. And now it's time to grow yourself and be mentors to the next. Yes. In the herd, in the flock. (laughs) So Justine and I were talking and with graduating, you are obviously earning a degree of some sort. Many of you um, are becoming pharmacists or most of you actually. So you are earning your doctor of pharmacy or your PharmD degree. So that means that technically you can be referred to as doctor. So on paper or in formal correspondence, if you are referring to yourself or you're writing to a fellow pharmacist in a formal setting, if you are addressing them, you either would call them doctor, insert name, um, and that's probably how you would start a letter or something. Or if you're doing a formal addressing of an envelope or some sort of more formal document with your name on it or someone else's name on it, you would put your name, comma, RMD, and then once you earn your licensure, it would be RPH. 
which can always go back and forth whether people include that, but it's there, whether or not it's physically there. Does it matter if it goes before or after the PharmD? I don't know. I, I don't know. I usually see it after. Normally I see degree common license. Okay. I haven't looked into it. But you wouldn't put as a sandwich, doctor, your name, your degree. That's like doctor, doctor. Yeah, that's it's considered redundant. Right. So that's like saying doctor, Joe Schmo, MD. Like that's not, they write Joe Schmo, MD or doctor, Joe Schmo. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's just something to put out keep there. In, keep in mind there. for CVs and for job applications and things like that. You want to make sure that you're doing the right thing with your your title or your Instagram post, but <laughs> or your Twitter or your Twitter, Ooh, Twitter your prof- your professional Twitter or your LinkedIn, mm-hmm. any of your social meds, your social meds. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So those are just a couple things I wanted to put out there. Fantastic. Um, so I have one major thing, one minor thing that I've learned. One minor thing is that I feel like everybody should own a power drill. Why is that just seen? It, because it's a particular brand and model and make. You know, I think I have a Black & Decker. Mm-hmm. I didn't get tricked into buying a pink power drill because I think that that's ridiculous. But mine's orange, and I think about it on Amazon, and it's got – I can use, like, the electronic screwdriver on it, and I also can drill with it. And for buying a new condo, I've been able to install things so much faster then, you know, when, it, when you put together furniture and you're trying to hand like screwdrive things or screw them in, it is a nightmare. Let me tell you how fast I was able to do. I was just like, just Aaron, you can insert real sounds of. Oh, we would love that. Electronic. <laughs> yeah. Please add in some um, what are those things? sound effects. Sound effects. Yeah. So, so much faster. I was able to put together my bed. I installed stuff into walls. I mean, I was, I drilled, I had to drill into drywall. I mean, I guess this is stuff that like, once you have drywall, sometimes, you know, you're still dealing with cement, you know, if you're in a dorm or something like that. But if you're putting together a new furniture, I think it's just something nice to have. They're not that big and they're pretty, you know, I think everyone needs a toolkit and everybody needs a power drill. I'm now converted. That's my small one. Uh, and shop Amazon Smile when you shop for your yes. I was going to say use the promo code, but I don't, joking, I don't have a promo code. Um, <laughs> no one paid me to say that. Um, my other one was that I know previously I talked about doing telemedicine for ambulatory care, which I'm still doing. And uh, one thing that I want to share is that if anyone else is doing this or you need to call your patients and you're not at work, Um, there's the app that I use and that we use at work is called Doximity, D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. And it's a free app, at least right now it is. And you can, you get registered through your NPI that you are a a provider. And then when you register with your email address, it takes a little bit of time for them to confirm that you work where you do. And then when you call the patients, it looks like it's coming from the hospital's main number. So I've had a couple of instances where I call a patient, they answer, they need an interpreter, call the interpreter, I have the interpreter dial the number and then the patient doesn't answer, but I call the interpreter back or use that interpreter and then call through Doximity 
at the same time, then you can merge the calls and then the patient picks up because they see that it's a phone number called coming from the hospital. So that's been really helpful. But in general, you know, that way they don't have my direct cell phone number. So that's been really great. And they kind of know what the general hospital number is. So they are more likely to pick up than it would be if I was calling from, you know, a random, even my, if I was doing like star six, seven and doing an unknown number, they might not pick up. I wouldn't pick up that. Yeah. And then they recently released a, a beta test, I think for video calls and it's actually really easy to use. They don't need FaceTime. They don't need any kind of zoom, but all they need, they do need a smartphone. So I've only been able to use it a handful of times. And when they're ready to do that, you send them, it sends them a text message and then all they have to do is click a link. And so it's very easy to use and they don't have to have the app either. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I tested it on my mom. I sent it to her and I didn't give her any instructions. I didn't tell her what to do. I was like, I'm pretending you're my patient. (laughs) I'm not telling you what to do. I can't help you on the other side, figure it out. And eventually she showed up in my chat. So, and, and it works. So I was able to help somebody with a freestyle Libre to actually two people, I think with putting on the freestyle Libre a couple other people had some issues with, you know, their glucometer or their insulin pen. So I was able to see what it looks like so I could help them along. And I've got one, I scheduled one today for next week for a new glucometer teaching. So it's just a little bit easier when you can see what's going on and help them. So uh, you can also fax through it too. So that's been nice to be able to receive, send and receive faxes electronically through the app. So I'll just be sitting here and my phone will be like, you have a new fax. I do. That's really cool. Cause the fax machines at work. <laughs> Great. Just seeing. Yeah. Little tools, tools you can use. That's, that's been really helpful. It sounds it. I love it. Yes. All right. Who we have, we have an incredible special, special guest tonight. We do. Someone who's about to be a fumbles. That's a, that was famous. Oh, <laughs> okay. That was a fail. <laughs> we have Dr. Tiffany self Vickers. So some of you might know her as Tiffany self and some of you might know her as Tiffany Vickers. So we'll just use her whole name just in case she is a consultant pharmacist from Louisville, Kentucky, and she's board certified in geriatric pharmacy and board certified in medication therapy management. So Sarah, you should get up on that. Yeah, I'll to have to get some details, that, get some info. So she works in, she has a kind of handful of different places that she'll kind of explain that she runs around to and, you know, checks in on their orders. And I think it'll be really interesting to hear from her totally different side of, of pharmacy than we've, we've really heard of. And I think something that maybe is a nice mashup between community pharmacy with clinic, like a little bit more clinical maybe than, than uh, you might expect from um, not, I would say clinical and um, like more independent practice than you might have uh, without having to call, you know, pharmacies all day or deal with patients all day. So you have that kind of with a much more flexible schedule. Does that kind of, I think that wraps up consultant pharmacy a little bit in a nutshell with a bow? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say it's a great opportunity to work in interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. kind of work and really feel like you're making an impact. Yeah, absolutely. So really excited to hear about her and about her exciting adventure that's coming up a couple days after this airs, 
which we can't wait for her oh, to tell you. Oh, we are so excited. So excited. But she's going to tell us all about it. She's going to tell us. So keep on with, and she'll be right back. We now welcome Tiffany Vickers. Tiffany is a consultant pharmacist. She's a past grand council member. She currently serves on the Educational Trust. She's a mom and special news. She was on Jeopardy. Will be. Will be. Will be. be on Jeopardy. <laughs> An upcoming guest on Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> so exciting to have you. Welcome, Tiffany. Tiffany. Thanks, guys. It's so cool to see uh, to, uh Well, well to see you. That we out. are seeing you. Thank you, Sarah <laughs> and Justine, for having me as a guest. It's really exciting um, to be able to share all these experiences with my fellow sisters. So um, thank you for asking me to be on. Of course. I don't think we have too many consulting pharmacists. Do you know, are there other, there's a, probably a handful of other people maybe that you know of in LKS? I think there are a couple of others, but for the most part, we have a couple of other pharmacists who do geriatrics, but maybe not in a consulting capacity as well. Mm -hmm. So Crochet Charles is very involved in geriatrics as well. Marina Perlman also is involved in geriatrics. I do think she consults some, but I do consulting pharmacy 100% of my, of my time at work now. I started out kind of with an 80-20 split, so I was actually dispensing in the long-term care pharmacy and then going out in the facilities uh, four days a week. Kind of yeah. eventually transitioned over. <laughs> what is yes. what is the difference, and maybe there isn't one, is there a difference between consulting, being a consultant pharmacist and a, and a managed care pharmacist? Is that the same thing? Those are different. I typically think of a managed care pharmacist as somebody who works for what I would think of more as an PBM or an insurance. So I actually did a managed care rotation as a student and it was with an insurance company. So I spent a lot of time actually approving and denying prior authorizations. It was the worst rotation. I hated it. (laughs) But I quickly learned as a student managed care was not where I wanted to be. But I know Humana is a big employer here in Louisville, and they have pharmacists who work in lots of different capacities, whether it be with the Medicare side or with formulary. So there are lots of opportunities in managed care. I just found out very quickly it was not something that I enjoyed doing. A consultant pharmacist, I describe it more as like being a clinical pharmacist in a nursing home setting. Because a lot of the responsibilities are the same, but you're going to, in most cases, a different nursing facility every day. So we don't, it's not just long-term care. I actually, every state is different too. So I want to say that from the get-go and the levels of care are different in every state. But every state pretty much has what you think of as long-term care or skilled care. But in Kentucky, we consult for a couple of different things. And we do what you think of as traditional long-term care, skilled nursing care. A lot of those are dementia residents, just patients who are a lot of times very elderly in their 90s. I have several patients who are over 100. And then our nursing facilities are also doing a lot of what we call short-stay rehab. 
So that's where a patient comes in from the hospital after a fall or a fracture or some type of acute surgery. They do a lot of physical therapy to get rehabbed and be able to go home. And um, Medicare Part A is actually responsible for all of their expenses occurred during their, their stay at the nursing facility. So it's very important for our facilities to manage their medication budget because they're getting a lump sum to care for that patient on a per diem basis. And they want to maximize their budget. So we kind of keep a handle on a lot of the more expensive medications, making sure things like Lovenox have stop dates. So one, you don't want a patient on obviously an anticoagulant any longer than they have to be, but also just the cost and the nursing time. We look at things like that, appropriate antibiotic use, antimicrobial stewardship came into long-term care in a big way with the new regulations that went into effect in 2017. So we actually formed kind of an antibiotic stewardship team at my work, and I actually did the Society of Infectious Disease Diseases. I did their antimicrobial stewardship certificate, which was very intensive, and you had to do a capstone project. So I actually did an antibiogram for one of my more rural facilities so they could see what kind of sensitivities they had in their own facility. And not surprisingly, fluoroquinolone's not good. Don't use them as empiric therapy for UTIs. So also in addition to those two settings, we consult for what's called personal care here in Kentucky. It's actually assisted living in a lot of other states. And um, they do not have the, the regulations that the skilled facilities have, especially with psychoactive drugs. So your antidepressants, your antipsychotics, anxiolytics, and sedative hypnotics. So a lot of the personal care assisted living residents, you're just doing kind of a medication review and looking for obvious like duplicate therapies, things that they could be having side effects to, monitoring labs, and you're doing kind of the labs and the duplicate therapies across all areas of consulting. And then some of our states, they do develop mental facilities or correctional facilities. Um, I have actually been to one of the jails here in Louisville when we had that account. It was very interesting. Their needs were very different than a lot of the other settings, but it was a good experience nonetheless. And then I also have an intermediate care facility who takes care of developmentally disabled patients. And they could be in their 20s and they take care of them all the way through their end of life needs. So there's a lot of cerebral palsy, a lot of patients who have seizure disorders. It's a very different patient population than what I see on a regular basis. So it kind of mixes it up for me a little bit. And I like that because it keeps my skills sharp in all different areas. So as a consultant pharmacist, you have to know a little about a lot of different things. And I like that. And I'm also a board certified geriatric pharmacist. So there's always just keeping up to date with new guidelines, things like the bears list, just uh, like when the CDEF guidelines changed a couple of years ago. I mean, I still have providers who want to use metronidazole first line. And I have to remind them that, you know, that's not current treatment anymore. Uh, so things like that. The nurses look to us as a resource for all kinds of different things, whether it be narcotic destruction, 
their go-to person for customer service issues with the pharmacy. Um, we're one of the two faces that they physically see on a monthly basis. So I get emails or phone calls almost every day with, you know, there's a billing question from a family or, you know, could such and such be a side effect of a certain medication? Or could you evaluate this patient's medications because they've had, you know, five falls in the past 20 days. So you just never really know what <laughs> what question you may get asked on a daily basis, but you're definitely a resource for all the nurses reaching out because they feel comfortable with you. They see you on a you know, semi-regular basis. So just answering their questions, taking care of the customer service problems. And sometimes it's just as simple as fixing a delivery time. So it's not coming in in the middle of the night when their nurses are, you know, doing a med pass or something. So there's lots of opportunities and you get to kind of be the face of the company too. So developing those relationships are crucial. Is it just you that's there? Or are there like how many other people are working and doing this? Or is this just, it seems like a lot. It's like, well, uh, we do have a lot of facilities. I cannot give you an exact, an exact count, even of what we service out of our uh, Louisville location, but My company, we have pharmacies in Louisville, Indianapolis, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Columbus, Ohio, and we're just getting ready to open one in Tampa, Florida. So every location kind of has their own team of consultants. Occasionally like Louisville and Indianapolis, oh, we have one in Nashville as well. I knew I would forget somebody. (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of times our teams will overlap. So there's a group of consultants out of each pharmacy. And sometimes the territories like Indianapolis and Louisville will cross cover for each other. And like the Grand Rapids and Indianapolis pharmacy, they can cross cover as well. But the thing about consultants is you do have to be licensed in the state for where you're reviewing the patient charts. So like I personally am licensed in Kentucky and Indiana, so I would only be able to help out for those two states. But we have huge amounts of customers in Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio specifically. So yeah, there's at least, we have four consultants here in Louisville. Indianapolis has, I think, a few more than we do, and so does Ohio. And we kind of, we will, um, a lot of times we promote from within, from the in-house side to a consultant's duties within the company. So I'm one of the ones who's been around the longest. I've been consulting for 13 years now. So, so yeah, they rebalance our bed load every six months and look at that. So sometimes we hand off facilities to other consultants and some I've had since day one. So it really just kind of depends on what our needs are as a company. So I'm sure it var- again, it varies by state, but do consultant pharmacists ever um, have the opportunity to do point of care testing? Like you were mentioning the monitoring of labs, like doing A1C or local I do testing. not do a lot of that. A lot of that is uh, driven by nursing in our facilities as well. The vaccinations are all pretty much nursing driven as well. And a lot of that is actually dictated by the federal regulations and the documentation that has to be done. So a lot of times I'm just interpreting the labs and making recommendations, especially in diabetic patients and in monitoring thyroid levels. In some of my facilities, I may be the healthcare provider that sees the patients or the patient's chart the most, especially in rural facilities where a physician only has to see a patient every 60 days. Things get overlooked very easily because the nurses are communicating primarily by phone call, text, or fax. 
And some of the physicians or the providers, because there's also a lot of nurse practitioners as well, but it's very easily, things get shuffled very easily and things get overlooked. So if it's been, they had a TSH level come back last month and it was not where it should have been. A lot of times I'll be the one who catches that and makes the recommendation to adjust their Synthroid. I make a lot of recommendations on blood sugars, A1Cs. Hypoglycemia is bad, but I have a lot of patients who tend to run too high. So knowing how to adjust those diabetic regimens, especially in older patients, is really crucial. And just things where maybe they DC'd their Lasix but kept their potassium on and now their potassium level is trending up. The INRs are actually pretty good about monitoring those. And in some cases, they do them way more frequently than I would like them to. (laughs) And then um, reminding them of drug interactions between Coumadin and a lot of the antibiotics that they tend to forget about. But when we dispense it, we always let them know that there's a drug interaction there, but it's not uncommon to see those INRs shoot up because they were recently on Bactrim or Levaquin or something like that. So just reminding them that they need to be watching out for that type of stuff that can really uh, be detrimental to, to some of our patients. Are you doing, is all of this electronically or do you, like, I guess, I think we've talked before, I think you go into the facilities sometimes yeah. and I guess What do you do when you're there versus what can you do remotely? Remotely, we can pretty much for, I'd say 90% of my facilities, I can see at least, actually for 100% of my facilities, I can see something electronically depending on which EHR platform they use. In about 90%, I can see the full patient chart remotely. So when we're not in quarantine and my facilities aren't (laughs) barring visitors, I would go to the facility at least one time per month. I would work on charts at the facility, have face-to-face contact with the director of nursing and the other nurses. In Kentucky, we can actually do narcotic destruction with the nurses. So we use a system that's called MedSafe. It's a one-way disposal where two nurses can sign off that they're destroying it. It goes into a mailbox style contraption it goes into a double liner and then it's double locked. And then whenever this huge box and liner is full, the director of nursing will let me know. We'll schedule a time. She has a set of keys. I have a set of keys. No one can access each other's keys. So I go in, we unlock the unit together. We pull out the box, seal it off, and then UPS comes to pick it up. And that's how we do narcotic destruction in Kentucky. It's not legal in every state. I know it's not legal in Indiana, but in Ohio and Kentucky, that's how we manage um, narcotic destruction. The nurses love it. I pretty much am the one having to deal with a UPS pickup, and that is sometimes easier said than done. <laughs> that there's a lot of logistics that go into that, but I've become friends with one particular UPS driver who sees me on pretty much a monthly basis, and he knows he's getting a box when he has a pickup at the facility. So we do that. Answer any questions they have. You'll walk in. Sometimes you get lots of billing questions, and sometimes I am not the best person to answer those. I know only enough about billing to be dangerous. So I kind of act as the liaison to a lot of our in-house teams who serve 
in those capacities. So a lot of times I'm emailing the business office manager about, you know, was it a copay issue? Is it that they're meeting a deductible? Are there other meds that we may be able to switch them to that are cheaper? We had had a specific issue this week where Berlinto was costing the family over $200. If they were on Plavix, generic Plavix, we could get it for them for their generic copay of like $10. So sometimes it's just following up with the employees at the facility about things like that and just using your knowledge and how you can help make it better for the residents and the families and the nurses as well. I think along those lines, um, there's a question from Melissa O'Brien, our Uh grand treasurer. She said, since you're not at the same site every day, how do you make and sustain connections with the providers and the other disciplines and can these relationship forming skills be used in with pharmacists in other settings? Well, thanks to Melissa for that question. And yes, I think that's definitely a challenge in this line of work. Some of the providers, I will honestly say, I don't get opportunities to have face-to-face contact with them a lot. And especially in some of my more rural facilities, that is more of an issue, um, especially if they're only going to the facility once every 60 days, and it could be on the weekend or at night, because obviously I'm not going to be at the facility at a lot of those times. But I do have opportunities. I have a nurse, one nurse practitioner in particular that I absolutely love working with. She asked my opinion and for advice on a lot of different things. So once you kind of form that connection, it's really beneficial for both parties, but forming the connection is sometimes a challenge. And my tip for this, and this is one thing I've used over the years is finding something that connects you to the other person. So it's probably not even going to be necessarily work-related. It could be something like you have kids that are the same age. Maybe you both have the same kind of dog. Maybe in the instance of this particular nurse practitioner, she grew up in Arkansas, and I actually did undergrad at a small college in Arkansas. So one day we just kind of started talking about that, and ever since then, like, it's really kind of like whenever we see each other, you know, we're talking about different issues that have come up with patients. So that was really like the one thing that kind of got me in the door with her was just talking about our experiences in Arkansas and asking her about her family. She has three boys. God bless her. <laughs> um, and her husband is actually in the Army Reserves down at Fort Knox. So we just kind of started talking about that. So like, we like seeing each other now and we're just always talking to each other about work and non-work related things. So my tip is just to always find that common thread with another person. I always look for somebody who's kind of open to me even being in the, the facility and you can kind of tell who those people are fairly quickly, but in kind of latching on to them. So that way, if you have questions, they're going to be receptive to answering and helping you. And again, it's just by finding that common thread that's between both of you. So that's kind of how I do it. Once you have that in with those individuals, it makes sustaining those relationships a lot easier. And when you're going to them with a really significant medication issue or lab issue or something, then they're going to find you hopefully a a credible individual because you've already got that personal connection. I love that. 
just kind of like reminding them that you're not just title pharmacist, you're a human right. being and you right. really deserve to be there. For right. So, and it's a lot of fun what you find out about other people. And then that leads you to talk about something else and like how common a lot of our experiences are, no matter if you're a nurse practitioner or a nurse or a pharmacist, or even a lot of the uh, CNAs are really great to talk to too. So you, I just kind of make friends with whoever uh, at a lot of these facilities. Like so, that's hard um, for you, Tiffany. Right. right. So. Like you're an unfriendly person to begin with. <laughs> so unfriendly. I think we talked about that at nauseum during the last <laughs> thing when we were talking about you being our sponsor. We're like, she's so friendly. And if you haven't talked to her at convention, you yeah, we're like, go talk to her. <laughs> right. So once it's I start checklist. talking, like you pretty much can't get me to shut up. So, <laughs> no. so yeah. <laughs> um, so when you are working remotely, a couple questions about that. Are you working from your home or are you like at your company's job site? And then are you working, I guess, pre also and post COVID <laughs> pre and post COVID. And then I guess also when you're at the job site, are you on a laptop or are there like designated workstations? I guess it's kind of like that whole flow and we do have our own laptops that the company provides for us and we actually run dual monitors so i have a laptop as well as a separate screen and so that's so i can do 500 things at once it's basically so i can look at the ehr as well as our consulting software so that's where i'm documenting notes to myself. Maybe I'm monitoring their blood pressures or their blood sugars. I can input all their labs, which I like to do. I have a very specific way I like to consult. So it just keeps me in a rhythm and I'm making sure that I'm not overlooking things that are important for the residents. So I can keep track of labs, their psychotropic medications. We have to document in long-term care what's called a gradual dose reduction so we're making sure that they're assessing these medications on a regular basis and optimizing the dose and the length of therapy that they've been on for a lot of them. That's antidepressants, antipsychotics, anxiolytics, and sedative hypnotics. And then we actually have a way that we go in and we document our recommendations. A lot of these are just, I use a lot of the same recommendations regularly. And then we also have what we call macros, which is kind of where our team has come up with a list of Cantat for a lot of issues that we see very frequently, especially now that we're doing COVID, we're getting our facilities with positive cases off of nebulizers to kind of help decrease the aerosolization of the virus. So I was leaving the same note with just patient-specific information on all the residents that I was doing that for in, in the facilities that had positive cases. Pretty much, I find wherever I can work that's available in the facility, it may be a conference room, it may be a closet, it may literally be a counter somewhere. Um, you kind of have to make your own spot a lot of times. And that is definitely one of the challenges to working in the facilities is that a lot of them don't have great spots for the healthcare providers to work from. Thankfully, I do have my own computer, so I'm not competing with nurses who are trying to do med passes and things like that. When I'm working remotely at home, I do get to work remotely at least one day a week, even not during quarantine. In 2017, one of the major regulation changes was that we had to see every admission to the facility. So our goal as a company is to turn those new admits around within 72 hours. 
we were not meeting this goal at first. So I have really great clinical supervisors at work and we actually rotate the new admission queue between three of us on a daily basis. So all of our new admits are being looked at every day. So that way, especially if someone's on vacation, you're not coming back to like 100 patients that have to be reviewed. But a normal pre-COVID Monday would have been about 60 admissions. And in the COVID days, these days, we're down to about 12 to 15 on a Monday because of all the elective surgeries being canceled. So when I'm working remotely at home, I have a little office set up in my basement. It's finished. It's nice. It has a window, but I have my work area. So when I'm in this area, I'm doing work and it helps me kind of compartmentalize what's work and what's what's home and I'm not out in front of my family members working on charts and having a lot of distractions. So being, I have a very large executive desk and I can set up all my screens and do everything that I need to. And it's really pretty, a pretty nice setup. So it's nice to be able to have the flexibility to work from home when necessary and then also be in be out in my facilities like the other four days a week. It's a nice, nice change of pace. So, and the great thing is we can kind of set our own hours. If you want to start at 8 a.m., that's fine. If you want to start at, you know, 9 or 10 a.m., that's fine, as long as all the work is getting done. So, I really appreciate having flexibility as as a mom to a two-year-old and things like that. So, if I need to take a, you know, a break during the middle of the day, then I can always make those hours up after Aiden goes to bed at night. So it's really nice to have that flexibility. Or if you like need to go to an appointment or you need to right. kind of do anything, you, it's nice and right. it's flexible. That's really nice. Right. And a lot of the questions I get, the nurses will email me. So I'm always available by email and I usually respond fairly quickly in most cases, almost all cases. So um, they know that if I haven't gotten back to them, that it's a priority for me to do so. And I, I can take care of all their needs, even if I'm not sitting directly at my computer. Yes, this is a pretty specific question, but something that in ambulatory care we've developed over the past couple of years is like a metric or a productivity number that's kind of reported out. Is there anything that, are you being somebody tracking you? Is there a certain number of charts that you're supposed to review and anything above that is just extra and awesome for you? Or, you know, like, What's your your quota or goal that you're supposed to be reviewing? So all of that is set by my supervisors. My lead consultant and also our VP of clinical, they coordinate. They review our bed loads every six months. And that also takes into account all of the new admits that we're responsible for reviewing. That is a team number since we kind of uh, team consult for that. But all of that is taken into consideration. They have a goal number of beds in mind that they want us to be able to take care of. Um, I think it's very reasonable. I know that there are other companies out there who I've heard have not so reasonable quotas as far as their consulting numbers. But my team supervisors will also, they have a formula that they use first off. I'm not sure what said formula is, but it works for them. It incorporates drive time as well. When I first started consulting, 
it was not unusual for me to have a one to two hour trip one way to some of my facilities. Now that I've been on the team a little longer and some of our area has been expanded and we've opened up the pharmacy in Indianapolis, I have dropped a lot of those longer drives. So I'm doing a mall, but three of mine are within an hour and sometimes even within 20 minutes of my home. So I've been grateful that I've been able to scale back a lot of the driving, but they decide on that and basically make the assignments based on what the numbers look like to them. And then every six months, they'll kind of update us as to where we are. They are very good about asking for our input and our thoughts. Um, Most of my consulting assignments have remained very stable for the past couple of years. I do have a new facility that's going to be opening up hopefully sometime soon. Nobody really knows now. It was scheduled to come up like this spring, but it will definitely, I'm sure, be post-COVID now, so probably into the summer or fall. But they basically give us our assignment, and they're very reasonable about what they expect. So um, I can't say enough about my supervisors because they do an amazing job and I know it's not easy. So awesome. I think it's really interesting to hear. It's a different, different job. I think we've had a lot of different kind of careers so far on, on the podcast. I think this is one that's kind of a one that you don't hear about too often, but I think there, you know, there might be some people that are, I would say this is something that's interesting probably for people that want to be very flexible with their hours, still mm-hmm. clinical. But also maybe not that front facing, like having to deal with patients and insurance and like all those phone calls that you do in community setting. Um, That's kind of what I'm getting out of it and and can do some stuff remotely. So I think you can offer some more clinical experiences for people that are interested. If if somebody is interested, Mm -hmm. what would you say would be like as a student, a good Mm -hmm. step versus somebody that's already in maybe like a community setting or hospital setting to do? Um, Well, uh, we do fourth year rotations. We are a site for uh, the University of Kentucky, Sullivan University. We have students from Indiana and Ohio as well. That's just from here in the Louisville Pharmacy. I'm not sure what other states have set up. They have different lead consultants, but my lead consultant is the technically the preceptor with all the schools. She's the one who coordinates with Sullivan, with UK, um, with any of the other schools that we may be having a student from. So she actually gets to do all the hard work. And for the most part, I get to do the fun work, which is precept and teach the students. She takes care of all the grading, all the communication with the school. And we just give her feedback and she's responsible for the evaluation and all that. So I really like that setup. I have students maybe five or six days out of their like four to six week rotation. It really kind of depends on which school the student is from. But for the most part, that's how it's set up. A lot of times they'll either ride with me if we're going to one of my out of town facilities or they'll just meet me at the facility if it's local and we'll just um, review charts together, you know, teach them a lot of things about geriatrics that they may not have been exposed to. I know when I was in pharmacy school, like 20 years ago now, we did have a geriatric selective course. So that's how I really discovered my love of geriatrics. So if you have that as an elective at your school, I would recommend doing that. Anything else that um, may be specific in geriatrics. I know at the University of Kentucky, they offer a gerontology certificate. 
So it's outside the College of Pharmacy, but it's an opportunity for pharmacy students. Um, get involved in the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. They have uh, chapters for students across the country. So there are ways to be involved even as a student. It's a lot of fun. So you learn lots of things that you don't necessarily see in other areas of pharmacy. So can we transition maybe to another hidden area of LKS? Absolutely. Can we talk about the trust? Sure. Tiffany, what is the trust? (laughs) The trust is a body within LKS. Um, We fundraise for educational grants. And all these educational grants are awarded every year to our mostly collegiate members, but we do have alumni members who may be working on a post-PharmD degree like a, an MBA or an MPA. We have one grant specifically who goes to those students, but it's basically free money for our dues-paid sisters. And it's an application process. You do have to have two letters of recommendation. Everything is through Smarter Select. So you can go in when during the application period and fill out the application. It asks about your date of initiation, how long that would include how long you've been a member, what your activities are with LKS as well as other pharmacy or non-pharmacy related organizations. I see a lot of just amazing sisters who submit these applications and are so deserving of these extra funds. It's a thousand dollars for a grant and I think this year we gave away maybe 10 but it's a great way to be recognized with LKS and receive a little extra money for student loans and living expenses and things like that. So I encourage all of our members to submit an application for whatever they may be eligible for. Our collegiate members are going to be eligible for almost all of the grants. And then the Be Olive Cole grant goes specifically to a sister who is either pursuing or has a PharmD or maybe, or, and is also pursuing an extra degree as well, such as an MBA or an MPA, MPH. A lot of the master's degrees are on the criteria. So I just encourage everyone. I love to read the submissions to see what all these chapters are up to and the events they're doing and things like that. And um, you'll see the trust every year at convention coordinating the auctions, which are a lot of fun, whether it's the live auction or the silent auction or uh, during the trust event where we have fun activities. But there are, I think, eight of us members. Sometimes I forget how many there are, but it's all the alumni members. And we're always looking for new ways to fundraise and sustain these grants for future generations of sisters to have access to monies during to support their studies. And can chapters donate directly to the trust? Chapters can donate directly to the trust. I would recommend that they send all their donations through HQ. So it is accounted for and there's kind of a paper trail for the donation. The trust also houses some chapters scholarships. So a chapter could actually even start their own chapter scholarship through the trust and it would earn some interest and hopefully grow into more from just their base donations, but that's an option as well. And do you hold a office um, with the trust, with the TLC? I do not. We have the chair and then the secretary. 
Um, And those are pretty much the two offices the trust has. The chair to kind of oversee communication with HQ and the secretary to kind of take and distribute minutes from our meetings and conference calls and things like that. Sarah, do you have other questions about the trust? I know Sarah's a big proponent of the trust. She loves the trust. We love the trust. As the educational grants committee chair. (laughs) So yeah, I just encourage all of our members to apply. Yeah, there's no reason not to. Exactly. Not to. And the more that everyone's able to donate, the more we Uh can honor. That's That's kind of how I see it, I guess, at the end of the day. And there's so many different opportunities to do that. Um, And then you also, Tiffany, were on Grand Council in a few different roles. Is that correct? I was. I was on Grand Council from the time I graduated from pharmacy school in 2004. I started as a region supervisor, which was a lot of fun to travel and meet with um, sisters from other schools. And then after two years of being a region supervisor, I was grand treasurer for two or three biennium. Now I forget. So grand treasurer. And then I moved into grand vice president for development for two or three biennium too. But I did actually charter for new chapters while I was GVPD and that was a lot of fun. I got to travel to Maine and um, Buffalo. It was just really exciting to travel and meet sisters and initiate them and to start a new chapter. I started one here in town at Sullivan University here in Louisville. So just connecting with the students and um, sharing my love of LKS and having them start their own chapters was just a really unique experience and just a lot of fun for me. And then in 2016, I decided to semi-retire when I got married as my husband and I were trying to start a family. And even though I'm not on Green Council anymore, I'm still on the TLC. I'm still on several active committees like the awards and nominations and also the educational grants. So I love still being able to be involved in a less visible role now but you know when the time is right i'll hopefully be able to come back onto green council and still be involved with the fraternity right now even though i'm not on green council so with involvement are you in the area that you went to pharmacy school or are you close to your alumni chapter collegiate chapter are you kind of and physically distanced from them? Um, I am actually very close to both of them. Um, I went to school at the University of Kentucky, so I was initiated into the Alpha Nu chapter. I did have a lot of facilities in Lexington, but I'm not in the Lexington area as much anymore. So I kind of see those ladies at convention. Even here, I'm like literally down the road from Sullivan. I don't see those girls as often as I would like to. So if they're listening to this podcast, they can always reach out to me by email email or Facebook. I'm always um, available to answer questions if they have any issues that they need to work out, but we do not have an active alumni chapter. So a lot of times I'm seeing a lot of these sisters from the collegiate chapters over Facebook and always enjoy the things they're posting about LKS, even though I'm not directly involved with their activities as much. I think also it's just very exciting because even though you're not like, oh, I'm in a robust alumni chapter community. You still very much stay connected to the overall fraternity, provided some really great ways to do that. Absolutely. A lot of my best friends are LKS sisters. And a couple of weeks ago, I did a Facebook chat 
chat with a few of them. And that was a lot of fun just catching up with them and what their quarantine life has been like and um, what's been going on at their work because we all do very different things. LKS has been crucial in a lot of my own personal friendships. And I had an entire table of LKS members at my wedding reception. So it was a lot of fun for all these sisters to come in and be able to come to our wedding as well in uh, 2016. So you definitely develop lifelong friendships through the organization. So you just have to take advantage of the opportunities that you're given. I love that. I remember when, so you were grand vice president of development when I was joining LKS and through orientation, the way I remembered your role was because your last name at the, your maiden name was self. So you were personal <laughs> development. That's how we remember. That's that, our little that, that was a really good point. I never even thought of that. But, <laughs> but you're like, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Tiffany, we need to know everything. So Tiffany was recently, she recently taped uh, Jeopardy with the Alex Trebek. Yes. So tell us, tell us the, what you were telling us earlier about how many people applied. Cause that I think is absolutely fantastic and just shows how freaking smart you are. I, I don't know about that, but um, hello. <laughs> um, I've been watching Jeopardy since I was like in elementary school. My parents and I would watch it while we ate dinner a lot of nights. And I've watched it on and off throughout my life. When you have a two-year-old, you don't really get to watch it quite as much as you might necessarily like to. But I did DBR episodes for a while. So I've been trying to get on Jeopardy for the past few years now. They offer an online test, or at least they used to. It was like maybe once or twice a year. And I would take them at almost every opportunity that I could because that's how you got the in-person audition and you couldn't get on Jeopardy without the in-person audition. So every time they offered this test, I would take it and I would hope maybe that I would like eventually get an in-person audition. And last April, I got an email that asked me to an in-person audition at the end of May. And uh, it was in Nashville. So my husband and I went down to Nashville and I auditioned with like 30 other people. And the in-person audition consisted of 250 question tests. And you have like eight seconds to write down your answer. The questions are very similar to what you would see on Jeopardy. So it could be something from a question about a president to the Academy Awards to pop culture. I mean, it could just be anything. So that's kind of what makes setting for Jeopardy hard is that it could be about anything really. So I did this in-person audition last May. And once you audition, if uh, part of the audition was also introducing yourself and talking about yourself and playing around with the Jeopardy buzzers, which the buzzers to me are actually, they were, they were actually the hardest thing. I think um, there's a lot more resistance than you would think with the buzzers and your timing has to be dead on to get in to answer the question. So the buzzers were definitely the hardest part, I think of the whole process. But they scored all the different people who did the audition, and then you get put into a contestant pool for 18 months, and you either literally get the call from Jeopardy, or your 18 months expire, and you start the process all over again with the online exam, hoping to get the in-person audition, and then hoping to get the call. 
So back in the middle of February, I'd come home. It had been a crazy day. My mom had fallen, broken her wrist. We'd been to see the hand surgeon. I'd gone to work. I'd gone to the grocery store, come home. My husband and I were getting food ready for our two-year-old. We were getting him fed. And I had just completely left my cell phone in the car, not even thinking about it. So it's like eight o'clock at night. I realize my phone has been in the car for like two hours now. So I go out to my car, I pick it up, and I see this voicemail from Culver City, California. So at this point, like, I know it's Jeopardy because they did tell us that it would come from a certain number because a lot of people think it's actually like a prank call when they get the call. So I knew as soon as I saw it who it was, I listened to the voicemail asking me to call them back. It actually ended up being a four-day weekend because of Valentine's Day and President's Day. So it was like another week before I actually got to talk to the contestant coordinator. Uh, So like this whole entire time, I know that they're, if they're calling me, they're going to ask me to come be on Jeopardy. But like, I don't know anything because it's the whole week before I can talk to them. So when I finally talked to them, they invited me out. They booked me for a show. So I had about three weeks to coordinate hotel flights, how we were going to transport my mom with a broken wrist, our two-year-old, and what was our child care plan going to be while we were in California. (laughs) So a lot had to happen in a very short amount of time, in addition to reviewing whatever topics I felt I needed to, you know, study. So all of this came together, and on March 9th, we flew out to California so I could tape on March 10th. And um, so on March 10th, I started taping my shows and they'll be airing the week of May 18th. I'll be on specifically May 19th. If you want to watch Tune in. Um, an LKS sister on Jeopardy. Woo-hoo. And Woo. I will never watch the show in the same way again, because it is such a surreal experience being in front of the board with the cameras and talking to Alex Trebek. It's just completely surreal. We were the first group of contestants that did not tape in front of a studio audience because of the coronavirus. They started limiting as many people as they could on the set, especially since Alex is immunosuppressed. They were disinfecting everything better than most hospitals. So uh, it was just our own personal guests. We could take up to six people as our personal guests. I had my mom, my husband, and my sister-in-law. So they were all there to support me. Um, A lot of the other contestants had a couple of people with them. So it was a very intimate audience with Alex who loves to talk to the audience and answer questions. And it's just a lot of fun. But after that whole experience, like I will never watch an episode of Jeopardy in the same way again. So it was just a once in a lifetime experience. They said they hit record numbers with people taking the online test last year. And there were close to 100,000 people who took it. I think it's available anytime now. They've changed that down from once or twice a year. But then they only offer in-person auditions to maybe 3,000. And from that pool of 3,000 contestants, only 400 will actually get asked to book a show and appear on an episode of Jeopardy. So I've seen where the statistics are something like you have less than 1% chance of getting on Jeopardy. So just getting the call and actually getting to go and experience this, especially while Alex is still hosting because 
you know, who knows how long um, he'll be on at this point, but it's just something I'll never forget. It was so exciting. It was something I'd wanted for so long. And then to finally like get that phone call is just, it's crazy. So, so how many yeah, shout so outs, I, how many shout outs did you give to LKS during your bio? And also, did you draw your name? Did you draw a sheep around your well, name? I was going to say, did you do anything <laughs> fancy with your name? I should have. I did not. The pins are actually a lot harder to write with as well than you would think. You have to press really hard. And I feel like there's kind of like a lag. Oh, yeah. So they're pretty tight on like who you can give shout outs to, especially because James Holtzhallard like did a lot. So we had to sign tons of paperwork as far as like non-disclosure agreements and things like that. And like one of them is like, you can't do that kind of stuff anymore. And I'd heard like before James Holtzhauer, they'd gotten kind of lax about it, but they're pretty strict about it now. So one person always ruins it. Exactly. So I don't even think you can say like the actual, like your employer's name anymore. Like it's basically like like just what you do. So like I was introduced as a consultant pharmacist from Louisville, Kentucky. So Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're pretty strict and you cannot have a cell phone out while you're on set at all. If they see you with a cell phone, they're like telling you to put it up. They keep everything like very uh, tightly, tightly wrapped. So can, what's, um, what's one like behind the scenes thing that people wouldn't know about when it comes to filming um, or the show so in you, general? I did not see Alex Trebek until he actually walked on stage to host the shows. So as a contestant, you get to see all the episodes that are being taped that day. They tape five episodes a day on Tuesdays and Wednesdays for two weeks of the month. So within four days of taping, they have a month's worth of episodes So when you're taping, you get to see all the episodes that are taped that day. So I was like, I can only imagine having been a contestant and watching James Holtower that entire time, because that would have been completely demoralizing. So that's one thing. Also, when you're playing, you're actually standing on an elevated platform that's maybe 20 inches by 20 inches. So you have to remember that's to make everybody like around the same height. I'm sure it's for the cameras. But you have to remember that you're actually elevated. Otherwise, you could step back and just fall off. So you don't want to <laughs> do that. It kind of limits how much you can move around and you kind of just find a comfortable spot and just stay there. And then at the end of the episode, they remind you that you're elevated and you have to wait for them to lower you back down to the ground. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Um, That's another one. Um, You have to take multiple changes of clothing. So if you uh, keep winning episodes, it looks like it's a different day when it's airing. Hmm. So all of us Jeopardy contestants came in with like bags of clothes and all the other contestants were super nice. I can't say enough about the contestant coordinators. The senior coordinator has been with Jeopardy almost since it aired. He'd been there over 30 years. So they're all just really fun. They're really great at their jobs and they're just all super, super nice. So the whole Jeopardy crew itself you couldn't ask for just more thoughtful generous people they're just it was so much fun to be around them and another behind the scenes fact is that uh, Will of Fortune tapes on Thursdays and Fridays and this is all on the Sony Studios lot in Culver City California but the crew from Jeopardy also works Will of Fortune so on Tuesdays and Wednesdays they do Jeopardy and then on Thursdays and Fridays they go over to do Will of Fortune Oh, wow. Didn't so, know that. 
Yeah. Lucky there. It's the Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. And Alex is super nice. He's very open about talking about his journey with pancreatic cancer. Um, He looks amazing. Like if he didn't talk about like being sick, I don't think I would even have a clue. He said that he wears a wig and a lot of makeup, but even up close, I couldn't really tell that. He looks really great. Yeah. You would never know. It's amazing. That's awesome. Oh, beautiful. It's such an ex- I'm so excited to watch I you. I to see you. And you know what? I'll cast live viewing party like on <laughs> Well, this podcast will come out on the 15th of, of May. And then yeah, so everyone will hear. Yeah. The so episode will be on Tuesday, May 19th. Unless I somehow get an email saying it's been changed. I'm pretty sure most of the production was shut down the week after we were there. I know that's, we got back to Kentucky on Friday, May 13th. And we came back into Kentucky as a lot of the non-essential businesses were being shut down. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they've not done any production since then, especially with um, Alex being immunosuppressed and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they'll be doing much else until. Yeah. Maybe they'll um, play like best ofs or something. Yeah. Well, there is going to be the James Holt Tower, Brad Rudder, Ken Jennings tournament, like the two weeks before my episode airs. So. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. So you get to see that and then it starts up with you. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. That's so, awesome. uh, yeah. If I get any details that it's been pushed back, then I'll definitely let everybody know. And then the week that I'm on, I'll have a profile on the Jeopardy website. I've been uh, checking it. And then I had my We're picture not. taken with Alex too. <gasps> So I'll get a copy. I don't have the picture yet, but I'll have, they'll email us the picture a couple of weeks before our episode. Oh my that will definitely be my Facebook profile picture yes. uh, when I get it. Heck yes. Is the Jeopardy that, board big? Like the board? It is. It's very big. I, gosh, it's probably. Well, you have to be able to see it from where you stand, right? You, you are able to see it. It's not big. Um, thankfully, since I had LASIK surgery, like I was able to to read it pretty well. There are two monitors that are a lot bigger where you can read the question as well. There's a monitor as well as a scoreboard over to the left of the scoreboard. So if you ever see contestants like looking over there, that's why. And especially like during uh, daily doubles and final Jeopardy, you'll see people looking off to the left and that's because they're checking the scores up there. But I could read the scoreboard. I think it would be challenging for some people, especially if you don't see like super well even with glasses or contacts but um it's really big I'm trying to think it may be like 25 feet by 25 feet I mean it's a large board neat yeah like when you walk into the studio and see the board and the contestant spots it's just like I'd be like Like, yeah it's it's just again it's completely surreal so that's fantastic Um, We did have another question that I just want to touch because a member asked it. They said at convention, you had a lot of good work, life integration, balance types of tips. So what kind of is your MO for that, for setting the boundaries? So you talked about obviously having like your designated work spot. This came from Alexis, right? Yes, let's keep from Alexis. Thanks for the question, Lexi. Um, I think for me, the biggest thing is that I have a supportive husband. And without him, I would not be able to do a lot of the stuff that I do. In fact, he is keeping our two-year-old as we speak. So he's not like running down here and screaming. 
So for me, it's having a supportive husband and a support system in place and my mom who's really helpful with our family as well. When I'm at work, I try to be as efficient as possible. So I'm getting everything at work done and I'm not having to bring work home at night. When I do, I always make sure that I do it after Aiden's in bed. So a lot of nights, my most productive times are from 10 p.m. to midnight. because it's quiet and we're all winding down and Aiden's in bed. But for me, those are the things that have been the most crucial. So, you know, a lot of our members may be single or dating. So I would just encourage you to really um, think about how this person's going to be as a spouse and as a parent when you have a family and what the support for each other is going to be like, because I couldn't do it without him. I would have had to give up just a lot of my non-work activities. And he's very supportive of LKS. He's been to all but one convention with me. We actually found out I was pregnant with Aiden in 2018 at the Atlanta convention, or I'm sorry, the 2017, I guess, Atlanta convention. So he's become friends with a lot of my friends and it's just been, LKS has been able to be a good experience for both of us. He's watching Aiden when I'm on conference calls and uh, doing some of my committee work. So he's just very supportive. He's a pharmacy technician, so he's around pharmacists all the time. Actually, my residency director was the one who set us up on a blind date, not knowing that we would be engaged four months later. And uh, she actually did a reading at our wedding. So uh, you just never know where opportunities in life are going to take you. Had it not been For my residency, um, I may not have met my husband. So I think work-life balance looks different for everyone. But for me, those are the things that have been crucial. So yeah, finding a support system, a supportive spouse and partner, and just trying to minimize the work while I'm at home. Um, Right now, there's really no way around it because we're all working from home. But um, having the designated area is helpful as well. So, so yeah. So when people are dating, we should add that to the list of questions to ask. Will you watch our child while I am doing a podcast in the future? That is very important. (laughs) Yes. Will you be a patron of Lambda Cap Sigma? Yes. Will you come to convention? Will you come to convention? Yeah. Rock some lamb gear. Oh, I love that. That's a good story. I'll talk to my supervisor and be like, hey, um, I'm sorry. Like, people are setting people up what's going on here blind date <laughs> engaged four months later uh hello Hi. single over here you just never know where life's gonna take you you just have to take advantage of the opportunities so oh my goodness so with the podcast one fat last question we're trying to get tactile fun advice so going back to kind of clinical questions with a chart review mm-hmm Transitions of care. What are other pharmacy areas? How can we help in maintaining and streamlining patients' profiles and making sure they're accurate and up to date? Well, obviously the transitions of care is huge. I find a lot of medication errors just in transcription a lot of times, or I think just med reconciliation in general. Um, With the patients who have been there either long-term or for more than one month, For me, it's a little easier to identify what's either been started or DC'd since my last visit because I know the date that I was there the last time 
and I'm able to just do searches through the EHR to identify those medications. So sometimes in that setting, it's going to be a lot easier than maybe an ambulatory ambulatory care setting or something like that because we've got the EHR that for all intents and purposes is accurate and we're not necessarily depending on a patient reporting to us what has been started or DC'd but sometimes just uh, the transcription or how orders are interpreted from the hospital um, on admission or where our focus is. And that's actually why we're trying to turn around our new admits within 72 hours now. I see mistakes with antibiotics a lot, um, making sure like INRs have been ordered with our Coumadin orders, things like that. Just lots of transcription orders. Yeah. Transcription mistakes. I mean, but yeah, those are the biggies as far as that's concerned. And um, I shudder to think some of the mistakes that were being perpetuated prior to 2017 when the regulation came into effect. So, because at that point in time, we didn't, we only saw who was physically in the facility on the day of our visit. We weren't seeing everyone. So, and I have a lot of high turnover, short stay rehab facilities. So there were a lot of patients who were never even seen by me and were a pharmacist. And I think a lot of the nurses have really come to value the mistakes that a lot of times we catch. And if it's what we call a clinically significant medication issue, we actually have to call the facility in addition to leaving the electronic documentation and they have to get that fixed within 24 hours. Oh, I like the urgency that's attached to it. That's so important. And we try not to obviously things that are just kind of picky, we would not elevate to that level, but things that could actually result in patient harm or a visit or return back to the hospital, those are the things we're trying to catch. I've had like a Kefsol one gram that was actually supposed to have been entered as two grams. I've had cefazolin entered instead of like ceftriaxone. So just things like that, that the nurses either think they've picked the right thing, not knowing, or it was just a mistake from the, from the get-go. Where would they be without you, Tiffany? I'm not sure. Sometimes it's kind of scary, but. um, I know when you think about that, like it gets you really nervous. Like, and if I wasn't here. Yeah. I've seen some really crazy things. I had a physician who was trying to treat a pseudomonas infection with unison, but he really thought he was ordering Zosin. Zosin. Yeah. So that was one where I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And sometimes that happens, but. Because there's got to be so much that you're probably like, you can't catch it all, I'm assuming. And there's things that while you're reviewing in one place, things are happening in Mm -hmm. another and you don't review it for another couple of weeks. And exactly. Antibiotic course is already done. Right. Yeah. I had a UTI treated with oral vancomycin. Oh, Oh. how'd that go? Yeah. So things like that. How'd that come? Um, did, did they get C diff? I'm guessing not. They did not get C diff. I <laughs> think the UTI was probably not serious of not enough to have even treated it. I was going to say probably asymptomatic but, bacteria. <laughs> right. So, but those are some of the examples. Of that. Yeah. Goodness, this is stressing me out. Yeah. But I mean, great job security because there's we're happy you're there. So much to do. Yes, I'm glad that so, you're taking yes. care of all of the people. Yes. So for all the students and other practicing pharmacists who are thinking about maybe consulting pharmacists as a line of work, those are just some really great examples. Yeah. 
Sounds uh, like there's plenty of work to do. D and D, exactly. Absolutely. And it's only going to be more as the population ages. ages. So yeah, wow. there are lots of opportunities. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, good because we're always looking for you know make sure that you know where where is you know kind of the world of pharmacy going and I. I always like to say Amcare, but that's just me personally. But also, I, I mean, I kind of agree with that because we right. want to keep people out of the hospital. Right. Um, you know, there's only going to be a certain amount of ICU beds at every place, well, unless COVID, and then we expand and expand. But, um, you know, there's only, there's limited versus, you know, consulting, you can, that kind of number is almost unlimited. Ambulatory care, the clinics are kind of unlimited. Right. Uh, it seems like now that we're operating with telehealth. Oh, There's even, no even more. Limitless. Exactly. I know. It's been yeah. a big question too to us. We're trying to figure out, are we going to be able to continue doing telemedicine when we do go back eventually? Is telemedicine mm-hmm. something we can utilize with students right. or projects or residents or something? So the, think, the post-quarantine era is going to be quite interesting. It will be yeah. so mm-hmm. interesting. <laughs> Can't just wait. We're here to help out with it. I just want to get out of the quarantine. Ours just got extended Amen for a couple more weeks. Oh, Maine too. Yeah, we just got extended. So, well, Tiffany, this was so much fun. This was Thanks incredible. Thanks for having me. I, so I talked a lot. So, um, no, yeah, it's great. If you see me at convention or at any other LKS events, you know, just hit me up. We'll chat. Oh, <laughs> yes. I can't wait. I'm hoping to see you or you'll, I mean, Indy's close to you, right? It's not yeah. too far. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that's a couple of hours though. Yeah. Yeah. If we get to have convention, which fingers I don't crossed. know what the status of that is, but fingers crossed. Yeah. Hopefully. So. Um, but we appreciate your, um, you coming on, taking the time out of your, your day. And well, thanks for asking me to come on. It was so much fun. Yeah. And thank you for sponsoring again. Last, uh, the last Ew. podcast. It was my pleasure to do so. So I'm always looking for opportunities to, to support other sisters. So thank you so much. And um, if you, if anybody else wants to sponsor, we'll make sure that we'll uh, connect you with uh, headquarters and with Aaron, if you want to sponsor a podcast yourself. All right. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you. Well, again, we thank Dr. Tiffany Self Vickers for joining us on this episode of Lamb Talks. Make sure you all tune in to her Jeopardy episode so we can cheer her on. We should start a hashtag, Justine. What would a good hashtag be? Uh, something like? Like Jeopardy, but with an X, like Jeopardy X. <laughs> like I was Martin. thinking something like, uh... I don't know. I was thinking like, like, like choosing a category, like Tiffany for 500, please. Or, Oh, I love that. Something like that. I don't know, but that's kind of long. Tiff for 500. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Go Tiffany. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, show her your support as you watch. So as usual, we thank you for listening and tuning in. Um, Justine, if they want to get in touch with you directly, how can they do that? That would be, they could, uh, they could follow me on Twitter. Oh my God. Yeah. Twitter RX. Um, Twitter RX would probably be the best thing. And that would mean that you would need to follow. I'm slowly reminding myself. Okay. Yep. Um, my hashtag, my handle, oh my gosh, my handle is Justine farm D. 
on Twitter. Okay. And if you want to get, I didn't remember mine. That's okay. If you want to follow me, I'm Sarah K farm D on Twitter. Um, you can also follow Lambda Kappa Sigma, which is LKS 1913 on Twitter. You can follow Lambda Kappa Sigma on Instagram. You should like the LKS page on Facebook. Justine and I use Facebook and Instagram to promote the podcast. You may have seen that we posted basically a call for questions for Tiffany's episode and we got some great feedback there. So we'll definitely be doing that. Make sure that you like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen on what you're listening to. You can use um, the Apple iTunes. You can use Spotify. You can also get in touch with Justine and I by emailing us. That's lamptopspodcast at lks.org. Or you can go directly to lks.org and use the webpage that's dedicated to the podcast. There's like a chat box at the bottom. And that's where you can submit any ideas or any future uh, suggestions for uh, any topics or uh, ho- oh, not host can guess. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you need a new host, let me know. <laughs> we hope you like us. <laughs> Clearly Justine can't speak anymore. It's been, it's been a long pandemic. <laughs> I'm, my social skills are going down the tubes. That's what's happening. <laughs> um, but you know how to find us, you know how to reach us. Um, make sure you're keeping connected with your chapters. Make sure you're spreading the blue and gold love. And we'll see you in Two Shakes of a Lamb's Tale. Bye. Bye. <laughs>